0: You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Okay, if y'all would like to, we're going to turn back to chapter 1, in the, uh, to the book of James. I'm going to just read the scripture up to where we ended last time. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, But let patience have her perfect work, that ye might be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So those are the four verses that we got through uh, last week. So we'll begin with verse 5 this week. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally, and unbraideth not, and it shall be given him. I want to just stop for just a second and discuss this statement of wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, it is being said almost from every corner. Uh, I, I hear it often that what seems to truly be lacking in our world today, almost across every front, is wisdom. And it doesn't take much to see it. You can, you can hear prominent people on the news and, and wonder uh, what level of stupidity they have discovered. It's like, speaking almost in illogical terms, you know, unreasonable things, and it being, being well-received, and so we're not confused that we are tremendously lacking in wisdom. It's not even unusual to recognize that we lack it within the Christian church. I hear far, far too much of what is said even in counsel to others, because I end up with them in my office after having been to places where they went to trust, they went to their pastors, they went to others, couldn't believe what they heard, found it to be no help. And it's like, how could someone so well trained, doctorates and other degrees, give you that and offer it as wisdom? It's very much what Jesus encountered when he was feeding the multitude and. He tells the disciples, you know, that we're going we're to feed these folks. And it's like, how can this be? Do you want us to go leave? And do you want us to go find some food? Do you want us to, what do you want us to try to do? Well, what you have in those situations is you have professing believers who are practicing atheism. And I find that to be remarkably true today, how many people are professing to be believers but are practicing atheism because their lives have no more faith in them or trust and belief in God than if they were lost do they profess to believe are they believers yes but what does their life tell it tells an entirely different story one of the things and I know that there will be many who would challenge me on it and I'm okay with that with that challenge with that challenge but if if we ever get a grasp of what wisdom truly is it's not hard to define why we're lacking it If we are completely knowledgeable, if I could recite the Bible backward and forward and know the history behind each story, if I was that complete in my understanding, I still would have absolutely no wisdom. And it's not too simple to say or an overstatement to say that you will not have wisdom absent the Holy Spirit. You can't have it absent the Holy Spirit. And again, I know that there would, uh, there would be those who would say, I don't know if that's completely right or not, but I'm convinced that it's absolutely right. Because if I had the entirety of that knowledge, but Mr. Hensley has a problem to which I need to apply that knowledge how will I ever understand his problem to come up with what I actually know to say if somebody who actually can understand his problem doesn't help me? If I'm going to say something that has any wisdom, any application that brings freedom or, or salvation or anything else that would be truly helpful, I have to release that knowledge according to what the Spirit can show me or it will be It will be great words, but it will miss the mark. Because as long as I could study, as as, as long as Mr. Hensley could tell me of his problem, at the end of the day, I would still have to say, Shorty, I still don't completely understand, but here's the best I can do. So if you remove the Holy Spirit, there is no chance of wisdom. So why are we lacking in wisdom? Is it the absence of knowledge? No, it's the absence of the Holy Spirit. I I wouldn't even try. And I can't say this this has always been me because I know it hasn't. But I wouldn't have any of the 33 appointments that I have this week. I wouldn't have a single one of those if I didn't understand that that the profundity of wisdom comes from the Holy Spirit, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't even attempt it because I would be left to my own devices to try to come up with something that was helpful that would be nothing much more than an opinion. But with the Spirit, And it says as plainly as it does that we can ask, if you lack wisdom, then then please at least understand what we're asking for, who we are asking for. That there's a direct association, at least there is for me, between knowledge and wisdom, and it is the Holy Spirit. It's a person not something else I know. That's why when I hear people say, well, our pastor talks a lot about the Holy Spirit, I'm glad, but that's not, the, that's talking about him is not the place from which wisdom will come. That's just more knowledge. It's actually letting him loose to do what only he can do. So if, you, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Again, I don't think that that would even be questionable if we, if we understood what wisdom was because if I think wisdom is more knowledge, where would I go? I'd go to a book. I would, I would find another chapter to read. I would add to what I already know. I'd listen to another opinion, search through another, another ancient work and I'd add to the knowledge Let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally. I love the word liberally, especially when we understand what it means, because to us it means abundantly, to give it a lot of it. But the word in Greek actually has somewhat of a different meaning, because the word liberally means with simplicity, now that does speak to the fact that it would that it would be liberal but the, the point that he's trying to make is if you lack wisdom and you want, and you ask of god he gives it to all men very simply that there's it's not augmented it's not tortured by any difficult requirements there's not anything there that would cause this to be difficult Because one of the great messages of James, and we'll get to this a little bit more in just a minute, is that James is leveling the playing field. James is taking away the austere reality or nature of the Pharisees as high and lifted up and somehow being special in all that they know. And and James, by the understanding that the Holy Spirit's giving him, is creating a very, very level playing field that this is not necessary because of the, of the hoops you jump through. You ask of God, he will give it to you very simply. And then he, and he adds to that when he says, and un, unbraideth not. So he's, what that, and unbraideth not, it says he won't do it with reproach. He's not going to say to you, uh, I will do it but you've got to do this, this, and this, or you've got to straighten up this part of your life, or you've got to, make, you've got to, you've got to do this better. He's saying he will not do it and, re, and, and cause you reproach at the same time. So this ought to be wonderful news to us. This ought to be very clarifying to us that when James is saying this, that, that if you lack wisdom, and we know what it is, ask of God and he gives to all men very simply and he doesn't reproach. As a matter of fact, it says God's desire is to give with grace, simplicity and not reprimanding or not with reproach or regard to past sin. What do most people hold against themselves that they feel like disqualifies themselves? I can't ask. I can't approach God that way because I've still got this, this, and this that are behind me and I've never dealt with them. And God's very clearly by the Holy Spirit saying, no. As a matter of fact, if you will allow this wisdom, if you will bring the Holy Spirit, then I will actually bring clarity to those things behind you and you'll know properly how to deal with those things. If I were to say you can't have wisdom until you clean your act up, then the very means by which you can clean your act up, I'm taking away from you. Like God's saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to reprimand you or hold something behind you, against you as a cause not to give you wisdom. Verse six, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the, with the wind and tossed. My quick assessment is that most of us don't even quite comprehend what faith looks like when, it, when nothing is wavering. but I'm a bit cautious in this approach because if I had to ever wait for me to make an assessment and say my faith now is absolutely 100%, I would probably very likely never ask God anything. I have to admit, I think we all do that there's just this edge of humanity that, that creeps in. but So I, I, I begin to say, okay, God, how does this work then? What does this look like on a practical way, but let him ask in faith. We have to go back a little. How do we get to faith? We talked about this last week. How did we get to faith? It was what? Ephesians chapter 2. It's a gift of God. It's his faith that he gave to us and it's perfect faith. If I try to start believing that somehow this is faith I generated, which is the typical thought, that this is faith that originates in me, then my immediate assessment is that it's imperfect. But what if I can get this in my head. What if I go to a bank and I take out $100? And the, and the whole time I take this $100, hoping that when I get over here to pay this bill, it will be enough. Does it change the adequacy of the $100? What do you think? No. It's still exactly what it was when I took it out, now, I may not believe that it's enough. I may measure it. I may do certain things with it, but the reality is that the $100 doesn't change. So when faith is a gift of God, and I, and I withdraw it to use it somewhere else, I may have all kinds of uncertainty, but the faith he gave me, if I spend that faith, then that faith will not be diminished in any form. So we have... To to finally kind of get a grasp on this, we have to be able to recognize that faith doesn't originate in us or there's going to be a huge question about, I can never ask anything because I'm going to waver. But when we read this, but let him ask in faith. Let him ask according to that which God has given him, not according to that which he has come up with in himself. The phrase, nothing wavering. This is a statement of, that, that boils it down real simply not wavering between belief and unbelief. It's, it was still very difficult for me to understand until I looked up the word wavering in Greek, and it, it helped me some. I'm not sure it answered everything that I could have come up with, but it's the Greek word uh, diakrino, which means to separate, make a distinction discriminate, to prefer, to create a variance. Okay, like, okay, how in the world does that connect to this? These are the words again, to separate, make a distinction, to discriminate, to to have a preference, or to create a variance. When I read that, I understood somewhat more because... When I find, and, and I, I'm, I'm going somewhere, I'm not sure the scripture intended, so if I take this too far, then you can back me up. You can back up where it fits for you. But this is, this is part of the answer to where, I, as I've said to you before, how surprised I was when I was looking on the computer, trying to find this word, accept, a-C-C-E-P-T, in the New Testament. And to my surprise, to find that it wasn't there, except in a few references where it was, it was more like, and Felix accepted something that Paul said. So the word was there, but it was never used in connection to something we accepted that was given to us by God. And again, my explanation of that is because the word to accept, and at least in a simple understanding of it, and I use the illustration of, you know, if someone's selling their house, they accept offers. Or they're selling anything, they could accept offers, and they they sort through that, looking for preferences, looking for variations between one situation and the other. And then they accept the best. But as I shared with you, the word receive is in the New Testament almost 200 times. Because there is a tremendous difference because if if somebody offers me something and I receive it, it has much more the nature of a gift than an offer. Well, we know the difference because I, I know what my mother and dad taught me. When somebody gives me a gift, I say thank you and I live in gratitude for what they have just done. When we begin to look at this and and say nothing wavering, it took me back to the situation where we find most believers who are the actual wavering is that they're sorting through truth, trying to find preference. They're sorting through, through books. They're sorting through scriptures. They're sorting through truth given, words taught, words preached. And they're sorting through that, finding distinctions and and kind of shuffling through this stuff to the yeses and the noes. I can take this. I don't want this. I take this. I don't want this. And we find find in that somebody who is not just wavering, which is this just belief and unbelief, but somebody that's actually picking and choosing what they believe. And we find this to be a, a, a little more evident when, as we go along. The Old Testament reality of what's talking about here, we see this picture is Israel who is only partly or marginally believing in God's power and goodness. Now we can tell this because they always lean toward limiting Him or limiting that power are limiting that goodness. So that's that's an Old Testament picture of wavering. It looks like belief and unbelief, but the reality is that for the Jews, they were were shown God's goodness, but they they kept leaning toward limitation. So what's the scripture that tells us the exact same thing today? When he says, I've given you the Holy Spirit, all I'm asking you to do is what? Don't do this. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't waver. Because the the Holy Spirit is how, the quenching of the Holy Spirit is how you're limiting me. That's the wavering that's being described in the Scripture. Nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with wind and tossed. So when it says here, it's like a wave of the sea, that means it's being driven from without, that the uncertainty is being caused by external influences. That's the connotation of it being driven by the sea. The influences up and down are driven driven by the sea. But very strangely, when it says, and tossed, when you you look at those words, the word tossed means it was... it's driven from within. It's driven from within our own instability. So we're dealing with two, with two situations. We're dealing with the fact that we live very uncertain about what we believe, uncertain about what we know, uncertain about what we've been given, uncertain about the God in whom we say we love, uncertain about ourselves, uncertain about our brothers and sisters around us, uncertain about the Word, uncertain about truth. We live this very uncertain life so there's an instability in us and because of that instability we're tossed but then we're very very easily driven by the wind well that's uh, yes it's found in this okay. oh, yeah that's that's often the outcome of this that that but it it's it's really so much bigger than that because we we do discover it in prayer, but we also discover it in in ministry we discover it in prophecy we discover it in the in the revelations of truth because we find it in so many parts of the Christian life is that we've marginalized instead of accepted our wavering is said and, and i This is not hard to discover. Sure can, and it does, and we find it. Because it's any time that somebody, this is why, and and again, I, I give a wide berth for disagreement, but this is why I taught a few months ago on a Wednesday night about how we, the different ways that we receive truth. And again, when we receive truth in the body, our body will actually create a physical response to truth. It'll cause goosebumps or it can bring tears. Our body will react to truth. When we, however, when we receive truth in the soul, in our mind, in our, in our emotions, we have a great tendency to process that truth and, we'll, and we always spin it around ourselves. So the truth becomes adjusted to our history, to what we have once known, to our former, the former things around us, and it gets adjusted and usually loses its power. But truth received in the Spirit will immediately create freedom. But we, are, we have been taught to process through it. I have a a friend, and I won't get very far into this, but I have a friend who is the follower of a very prominent uh, preacher, teacher on TV, very prominent, and very difficult to have conversations with him because you can't vary with him from the teachings of this pastor. He won't go. Because the truth for him has been determined almost by one dimension. And and you're not getting, you're not going to, so when you begin to talk to him outside of the agreement with his pastor, like, no more. And he's told me, no more. I won't hear you anymore. Went, went too astray from this television preacher. Sure. He can't figure out why God would tell me something that he wouldn't tell this other pastor first. Well, I'm sure that's the case. But that's, that was his explanation, said I just can't believe God would tell you something he wouldn't tell him first. So I get many many variations of this. Verse seven, for let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. That's a pretty pretty bold statement. For let not that man, that man, that wavering self-deceiver, we have to get that man correctly defined, a wavering self-deceiver, for let not that man think Again, that the word has to be considered or be understood in the absence of faith. For, if, for let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. Of those things prayed for, there will be many blessings that this man will receive simply because it's a provision of God. He's going to wake up and the sun's going to shine on him, a gift of God. He's going to have a provision of shelter which God provides. He's going to receive many but this particular man will find himself powerless in prayer. Powerless in those things he asked for because it says, if you're going to be that man, wavering, sorting through, and I hope this connects because I'm always searching, and I don't mean that you have to, but I'm always searching for those reasons why why he could say of us today that they had a form of godliness but knew not the power thereof. I'm always searching for why that would be the case. Well, we find it here. Our sorting through truth, picking and choosing, wavering is having an effect. Our lacking wisdom, the removing of the Holy Spirit is having a tremendous effect. So when we ask of God and it doesn't happen, we just mark it up to God's lack of willingness or God's lack of hearing. And we, and we don't search, not within ourselves, but search within the truth that God gives us. Because I can search within myself all day long and probably won't find anything, but I can search the word of God and let him speak to me. And he will reveal to me those places in my life where he needs to reteach me or to show me beyond what I currently know. Verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The double-minded, it really means more literally double-souled because it's it's referring to mind and emotions. Basically, he's saying an unstable man toward God and and into anything else. When our mind is divided, when our heart is divided between God and anything else, then that's, that is what he would refer to as double-minded and unstable. So once again, this is one of the, this is one of the challenges of James because he just keeps going, bam, bam. He just hits you on, on, every, on every turn when he's doing this, but he has such a specific purpose in doing it. He's trying to demystify this working relationship with God to bring it to something that that all of us could understand because he's not trying to add complication. He's trying to remove complication. He's trying to tell us that it is the Holy Spirit. It is faith that he gives us and that that we're the ones who are complicating this story, double-minded. It's not a hypocrite. This is what we would typically think. This is somebody that professes a belief in God but acts some other way. It's not what he's talking about here. I found that a bit interesting because he's not talking about somebody whose who's mouth says one thing and whose actions say something else. That would be a hypocrite. What he's speaking of here in somebody that's double-minded and being unstable is a man who is fickled. How would you define the word fickle? Can't make up his mind. mind. So once again, it goes back to the sorting and the processing and looking and trying to accept and and trying to understand and spending all this time trying to sort through those things and and instead of letting the Holy Spirit be the one who brings that truth. So we find ourselves in in this passage once, once again, just recognizing that what James is talking about is not the conflict of hypocrisy. He's talking about the, 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 the difficulty of a man wavering or being fickled, indecisive in the things that he says or believes. And how many times do we come to somebody almost apologetically saying, I'm not sure if this is of God or not, but I think I'm supposed to tell you. Like we just built a condition in here so that they don't like what we said, that we've just protected God from being the victim. And I'll be very honest. There are times in my office when I hear things and God says, you heard me, say it. Just like you heard it. And then there are other times when I'll tell somebody I'm about 70%, 70% sure this is God and 30% maybe this was me. I said, but when I say it, if it hits the mark, we're going to know the difference. Yeah. If him, yeah. Sure. If it hits the mark, cause that's wisdom because it's addressing what's really deep in you that I couldn't discover. Yeah. I had one of those just last week. I'm because it hit me so fast. It was like I was asking God for this, for this false identity. And it hit me so quickly. It's Like I told the person in front of me, I said, I'm, I'm not sure. That was odd. I know it came strangely, but it came so quick. It's like it didn't even give God time to speak. So I, I told this person in front of me, I said, I'm, I, think, I think it was about 70, 30. it's like, but you're going to know. We're going to discover in just a minute whether it was me or whether it was the Holy Spirit. Because we're, it's fixing to make a lot of things fit or we're going to say, no, that wasn't it. And I said it and the, and the cogs began to come together. And, it's, and, and there was a, an extreme wow for me. I think there was for him, but I would wait for him to give his own opinion. But it was, but I don't, I don't mind telling somebody that it, uh, I'm not sure this was I'm not sure this was the Holy Spirit but I do know how to know in a minute because I don't want to deceive somebody I don't want to tell somebody but if, boy, if he tells me and I know I hear it I want to say it was him I don't want to condition I don't want to remove I don't. I don't want to destabilize the statement I don't want to give God an out he doesn't need one so I don't I don't, want to, I don't want to be that fickle guy. I don't, I don't want what comes out of my mouth for somebody to wonder where I stand on something. I'll give a lot of ground for, for differences. I'm, I'm not bothered by it. But, but the, when, the, when I know that the Holy Spirit has shown me or taught me, I have no hesitation to say it, and then we can discuss anything that we want to afterward. Verse 9, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted but let the brother the best remedy against this double-mindedness spoken of in verse 8 the best remedy against double-mindedness is the simplicity of the spirit by being accounted as a son and an heir this is why we need this bigger picture of actually who we are everything all extensions where i could all the fingers of where i could see this word brother go give clarity to who this individual is this, but let the brother, a believer by faith, spirit-filled, equipped as a child of God, experiencing both revelation of truth and experience of maturity through encounter. This is that person that he's spoken of. But he says, the brother of low degree. The, uh, the entire epistle of James, and we will see it in several places, again, has this underlying design that will reduce all things to equitable footing. He makes certain that he says that this person of low degree, this person that no one would listen to, this person who was uneducated, this goes very well with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when when Paul is talking about choosing the base things to confound the wise things and and the weak things to confuse the powerful things. strong things. James is is delivering that message. Of course, he did it before Paul did it. As I mentioned last week, James is probably the earliest writing after Jesus' crucifixion before anything else. James 2 verse 1 says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. So once again, he's addressing this, that there is no elevation, there is no situation by which our qualifications before the Father change. Verse 10, and we'll end there, I think. But the rich, in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. So far as so far as one is merely rich in worldly goods, he shall pass away. This has been a verse of, of significant controversy, asking this question about whether this rich person is saved or not. But James does a really good job of answering that question for us if we don't try to read in between things, because he's, he's basically saying, but the rich, in that he is made low. It means, how do you make a rich man low? Is you take away his riches. You take away that which he trusted. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. So, someone who's rich in worldly goods, he shall certainly pass away. Insofar as his predominant character is that of a brother, he abides forever. So, that's he's creating the separation between a brother in the previous verse and the rich in verse 10. Uh, one of the things I read said, But James says that the rich man also will fade away. The rich man will fade away, not his possessions, but the rich man will fade away. If we put our life and our identity into things that fade away, we will fade away also. That should not surprise us because if we put our faith in something eternal, we should should expect to, to reap that eternity. If we put our faith in those things that fade away, and it's not some of each, but he, James is drawing this distinction. A brother has put his faith in something that is eternal and will abide forever. Someone who puts his faith in worldly goods that can, be, that can pass away, that he will also pass away. He also says, how much better to put our life and our identity into things that will never fade. If a man is only rich in this world, when he dies, he leaves his riches. But if a man is rich before God, when he dies... He goes to his riches. I'm going to read one more verse because it goes with that one kind of hand in hand. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass and the flower thereof falls. And the grace of the fashion of it perishes, so also shall the rich man fade away in his, in his ways. Interesting phrase to me when it says, and the grace of the fashion... We read it in context one more time. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass and the flower thereof falls. And the grace of the fashion of it perishes. So the grace of fashion, is, is, this, is this is a reference to Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. This is where this comes from the reference of grace of the fashion means something that only has an external appearance an external appearance so he's saying that that which has only an external appearance when it's tried when it faces the heat it will wither it will fall and the grace that that which that external appearance will fade away quickly Does it help us understand why so many who have perhaps once said faithfully in church that they were once here and when the trials came, it exposes the fact that some of that perhaps was external appearance. That the roots weren't deep, they weren't well grounded, they weren't permanent, and it, and it faded away. Grace of the fashion, and then it says, and so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. That in his ways is referring to the burdensome extent of, of, of the rich man's devices, those things that he did to become rich, which, and the appearance of, of wealth that he, that he carries, and the burden that that wealth creates. That just like that, when the rich man's faith isn't in something eternal and permanent, then in any trial or any test, it's going to fade away. Rich really has such a bigger context because the rich says, basically, those who are going to trust the world. I use a lot the passage in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 25, and I'm probably going to do a pretty poor job of giving a simple version of that. But it begins by saying, how can we, or what can we expect if those in the Old Testament who heard from God on earth and, and resisted that which he said didn't escape? How then can we who hear this voice not only from earth but from heaven how can, how can we escape? And then he goes on to say, because God will, in that day, shook everything on earth. And he will again shake everything on earth and in heaven so that we will trust and put our faith in an unshakable kingdom. Now, he's not doing that on his behalf. He's doing it on ours. He's working diligently to shake those things that will expose these things that are simply appearance because wouldn't it be a shame for us to be left alone in that thought and him never shake those things that that only are external so that we could discover something that's unshakable and internal. I mean, this would be difficult for us to stand before the judgment seat at some point and, and recognize that, and I'm, this even sounds foolish to say it, but to say to Jesus, you never told me. You, you never told me that I was trusting something that was foreign and empty. That was simply, as the, um, as the Pharisees, and again, James is writing this first before anybody else does. And you can imagine the the Pharisees who believed that the elevation of their position said, God blesses us and loves us more. And James, the first writer of anything after the crucifixion and the resurrection, is writing this and establishing this huge question of the Pharisees because they had for so long dominated this position And James is saying there is no position. They have have learned to trust the external and put it on display, but you put that stuff on trial and that external is going to fade away. That who trusted those things, and it was religion, by the way, they were trusting, would still fade away because that which will not fade is what you understand and hear this faith that he gave you that is unwavering, this belief that is that is that is trust, because we're spending that faith, using that faith that we were given, not the faith we could that we could pile up and achieve within ourselves. James is right down on the ground. He is, his, his words move like this, like this mist that's right on the ground where nobody nobody gets, if it, you're not running from it. it. It moves low and it's subtle and it's powerful and you've realized that it's gotten on top of you before you ever knew it was coming. He speaks in that kind of truth. It's not always easy to take, but when you understand the purpose of the Holy Spirit and the writing of it, And that was that so James could reflect to so many people who seemed disqualified from anything of God. And he's telling them, no, you of this this faith, this brother of low degree, you have standing before God like you've never understood before. Because he was encouraging, he was building up, he was testifying of something that those that had been disqualified had never quite known. It's really important in this context to realize that James was the earliest of the New Testament writings. It really, because he's speaking directly, he's not coming behind Paul, he's not coming behind Peter, he's not coming behind all that had already been written or the letters that he might have once read. And again, he doesn't stand on any claim that he's Jesus' brother. But he's releasing something out of experience and knowledge, wisdom, revelation that is received by the Holy Spirit and it's designed to bring great equity to the footage on which we stand. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.